Welcome to Toby Haddock's Who's Round, an edition that can be enjoyed with a glass of cool spring mountain water. And uh, I've travelled all the way from Manchester, so I'm not dressed for this weather. Um, but I'm going to ask my next guest to tell me who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. Well, my name is Hrabina Ruza Maria Laura Leopoldina Monika Łubieńska. Um, most people know me as Rula Lenska. As you can see, I didn't keep my original name because it's impossible to pronounce and takes up far too much room. Um, I have agreed to speak to Tony about my brief sojourn in Doctor Who in, I believe it was 1984, yeah. in the resurrection of the Daleks, um, and generally from uh, a few remarks about that to um, broaden into wider horizons. Yes, indeed. So let's dismiss, because you said in your email you didn't remember much about Doctor. You didn't even meet the Doctor on screen. You were just there to die. It's very sad. Um, did I not meet him? No, you, you, don't you see... never actually meet I've him never seen it. There's a photo shoot with him and you, so you, you will have met him. But actually on screen, anyone watches carefully, you, you never, you you never catch up parts. with each other. But I remember the character was called Doctor Styles. And I remember being dressed in a sort of white suit with a sort of 1940s type victory role. Um, and in all the photographs that I've seen at the Doctor Who conventions, I'm always holding one of those um, Dalek blasters. Yeah. The most memorable thing, my daughter was about four years old and a huge Doctor Who fan. At the time, we were living out in the country in Buckinghamshire. And we had three young lads as neighbours who were my daughter's greatest friends. And I was able to take them on set, which was a huge thrill for them. And in fact, I remember one of the little people who were in the Daleks did a special surprise. We came back from lunch and the Dalek came across the floor and said, attack and destroy, attack and destroy. And my daughter and her little mates were absolutely terrified. And I guess it's, it's funny because if you look at the cast of that, there's yourself, there's Rodney Buse, Del Henney, Maurice Colburn. These are serious actors doing what is essentially a, you know, children's television programme. So yes, but it's appeal. become a complete cult now, isn't it? Everybody and anybody has been to doc uh, in Doctor Who. And I just long for the day when there's going to be a female Doctor Who, because I think that would be a fantastic transformation. Well, um, They keep uh, talking about it. Hmm. I'm not sure you'll have that long to wait, actually. But um, you, you, you started by giving us your, your, your full name, so your background is very... I remember seeing you, was it you, on This Is Your Life, and your mother was on it. I both my she, parents were on it. It's right. the last living footage I have of both of them. That's right, because I remember at the end they said that she died My mother died two broadcast. days afterwards. Yeah, yeah. extraordinary. So, to tell, for those of those listeners who may not be familiar, because uh, what an extraordinary story she had, so maybe fill us in on that. Um, both my parents were of high aristocracy, um, they came over to Poland immediately after the Second World War. My father was not in Poland when war broke out because he was the secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And so he was, I believe, in Romania. Um, my mother escaped just before bro war broke out from just outside of Krakow in Poland and ended up in Yugoslavia for three years while it was under the Italian occupation. 
And then when the Germans invaded, they were advised to move to an island off the Dalmatian coast, where they were for about another year. And then when the Germans invaded, they were all carted off to concentration camp. Um, most people think it was only the Jews that went to concentration camp. This is not the case. The intelligentsia and the aristocracy went as well as my mother was in Ravensburg for 200 years with her mother and her sister, and her brother was in Dachau. Um, she spoke very rarely about it, but extraordinarily, some of her memories she claims are the happiest times of her life because of the true solidarity. Um, whichever way you could trick them and get something extra, something more to share with other people, was such a huge triumph. And I remember her saying that she worked for a short time in the factory that made V2 bombs, and her contribution to the war was to make certain that every little piece she made was damaged in some way so it wouldn't fit into the next piece. <laughs> Sabotage. <laughs> Absolutely. It's true. So what is it that made somebody from, as we said, you know, the highest of backgrounds uh, enter the second oldest profession? <laughs> <laughs> Much to my parents' dismay, I have to say, they didn't think that acting was the right sort of profession for the daughter of a count and countess. My father wanted me to go into the United Nations because I speak several languages. Um, and my mother just wanted something a little bit more um, elegant. <laughs> my father said that the, being an actress is akin to being a prostitute. Well, sometimes there is no great difference. Um, however, you know, when things began to happen, they were incredibly supportive, although my father never really quite understood what it was all about. And my mother was always moaning that I was always cast as a villain or as a scarlet woman. You know, why can't you be cast as somebody nice? <laughs> but are they not the better parts? Oh, much more fun parts to play, of course, absolutely. But I, I've been very lucky because I've had a wide variety, mostly in the theatre, um, which is where the sort of mainstream of what's left of my career is in the theatre. Um, not enough Chekhov, not enough mm. Shakespeare, not enough of many things, but unfortunately a lot of producers and directors don't have an enormous amount of imagination. And because, although I'm an old lady now, but I still look striking, I've still got the red hair and I've still got the sort of deep gin-sodden voice, <laughs> um, I would never be cast as the girl next door. They just don't see me that way, even though I've paid, played some fairly or definitely anti-glamorous parts like Misery, mm. um, the Kathy, Kathy Bates, Bates part, yeah. part. Uh, oh, lots of other things, I can't sort of remember them off the tip of my tongue. But I dreamt that I would find a corner specifically in Chekhov and Turgenev because I thought I was ideal casting yeah. for that. And I've played the Cherry Orchard once, but that was only in rep. And it just doesn't seem to happen. You know, the dream has always been to get into the RSC and the National. So far, no joy. And, and have, I mean, have you made the in? You know, have you made attempts to do that? Yes, I've been up for several parts. I got very close to Gertrude a few years ago with um, David Tennant playing Hamlet. Um, but it was given to a, a sort of steadfast member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, you know, they, they say lovely things, oh yeah, we think she's great, but she's not right. What that ba what they base that on, I 
I don't know. No, it's tricky. And do you think the more interesting casting that you've you've um, experienced then has been in the theatre as opposed to television? Oh, much, 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 much. And I've just finished uh, an episode of Casualty, in which I play a uh, a sort of failing, well, failed horror star. <laughs> ah, it's <laughs> great fun with um, a terrible infection in her ear through wearing costume jewellery. And before that, it was an episode of Inside Number Nine, also playing a sort of grand dame. And this summer, I'm about to go up to the Edinburgh Festival to do a sort of piss take of the Eurovision Song Contest, playing a ex-KGB um, Russian spy who's presenting the whole thing. Oh, sorry about that. Somebody's having an altercation. Calm down. It's the RSC casting director. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Edinburgh, because that's full on Edinburgh for you for the whole month. Yeah, we rehearse in London. It's called Eurobeat, and I believe it was done three years ago. The idea is to get a sort of series where it's held in different countries. So the one that I'm presenting is in Moldova, but there. The turns are exactly like in the real Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, we've got singing nuns from the Vatican and, <laughs> and um, uh, what were they called? Jed... Jedwood? No, the, the two uh, twins with the huge... Oh, George, were they, I know the ones you mean. Uh, they yes, Irish. Jed, Jedwood. I, Jedwood? Yeah, John and Edward. Jedwood. Oh, right, okay. okay. Yeah. So there's a sort of uh, a look-alike of those, okay. and then there's a river dance. Um, and I think we've got the Polish Minister for Foreign Affairs or something like that singing a song as well. But it's, they're proper acts. Yeah. And then the audience is asked to be part of the jury. So it looks like it's going to be fantastic. So that um, like that's quite exciting. Um, and then also there's a one-woman show about Rita Hayworth, um, of which I've done a rehearsed reading, and there's quite a lot of interest in that going further. Um, so, you know, things are moving. Things are obviously not as busy as they used to be. Also do audio books. And apart from that, my time is heavily given to several charities. So the appetite never goes, then? No. No, I mean, the amb I was never hugely ambitious anyway. Um, there were other things which were more important in life. It was my sort of biggest success time, I suppose, was at the... Rock Follies stage mm. in the tail end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s. Um, and fame or notoriety or whatever you want to call it is a two-edged sword, definitely. While it's wonderful to get into restaurants that supposedly are full and you give a name and they'll find a place or you get upgraded on aeroplanes or whatever. But when things go wrong, they can't wait to shove the knife in. Mm. And that's happened several times. As far as being on a chat show about myself and talking about my life and my beliefs, again, I've been far too open at times and far too generous with giving information to the press to my own detriment a lot of the time. It has to be a clever balance. Mm. I mean, obviously, when you're performing in something, they need you to publicise it, um, and you are duty-bound to do so. Nice. But I think, as I've got older, I've learned that there are several things that one just doesn't elaborate on. Although, 
Sadly, the press, ever since Diana and Prince Charles, there doesn't seem to be a sort of sensitive demarcation line anymore. Anything goes. Well, we are not about that, fortunately, no. so let's let's go back to something you've already mentioned, which was Rock Follies. Would you say that that was your, your biggest early break? And if so, how, how did it uh, come along? And, and, and what changes did you notice from, from what impact that had upon you? Well, it had the most enormous impact. It changed my life from one day to the next. And we knew through a fairly hefty series of auditions um, singing and dancing and acting, we knew that it was going to be something special. We didn't know quite how huge and how how much of a cult it would become. It was definitely the most exciting job I've ever done because it was a dream. You know, fantastic scripts, wonderful songs, your own dancing, fantasy sequences, um, all the stops pulled out by Thames Television at the time. And the uh, first day when it hit the screens, I mean, I used to be able to go to Sainsbury's, you know, in my torn jeans and no makeup on, and suddenly it was being stopped every five minutes for autographs and photographs. So it was terribly exciting at the time. Um, and we were riding on a, a real wave, and we got silver, gold, platinum for the discs. It was enormous. And then we did a second series, and then there was a talk of a third series, which never happened for reasons which I won't go into. And sadly, it's never been repeated because there was a huge court case. Um, three actresses who said that they had approached Howard Schumann, the writer, with the original idea, were apparently promised by Thames Television that if it ever came to fruition, they would be cast. And because one of them was um, under contract or something else, they couldn't. So. And they won the case, so there must have been truth in it. Um, but it was, a, it was a magical, magical, wonderful job. Although, because Howard was with us throughout the filming of the first series, um, it was scary to see in the second series that things we'd said as actors were actually written into the script, so it became, you know, life imitating art. Mm. And in the first series, when it was the little ladies, the original name of the group of the three girls, against the rest of the world, it was a very tight-knit feeling. When it was war within the little ladies, then it became pretty tricky. <laughs> well, it's, and it's interesting because every sort of in preparing for this, a lot of things come up like um, flush and calendar girls and vagina monologues and all those sort of things, which which suggest a sort of drive towards very sort of female-focused um, work. And is is that something there for somebody that's been involved with that a lot? Are things getting better in that regard? Would you have to keep fighting? Well, there are, as any middle-aged and older actress will tell you, actor will tell you, there are far fewer parts for women than there are for men. Um, I think every actress of a certain age will agree. You then run into that dichotomy. Do you sort of, if you have the money, spend on trying to make yourself look younger and, you know, hold back the years and all the rest of it, or hope that at some point you will start breaking through that fence into decent character parts, um, even though there are not very many of them. But again, that level is held by five or six 
of our top actresses of the sort of Helen Mirren, uh, Julie Waters, Celia Imrie brigade. And it's very difficult. I'd like to think that the last two parts are definitely character parts. I mean, they're still sort of pseudo-glamorous, but they are character parts. Um, you know, an actor never retires. No. One keeps going, and there are good times, and there are bad times, and there are horrid times when you think you're never going to work again. And then suddenly two or three things come up, and, you know, you're buoyant again, and it's a bizarre lifestyle. Mm. But when things work, it's fantastic. When things don't work, it's sad and depressing. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, interesting, as, as Doctor Who aside, um, you, you've made a mark on sort of popular sci-fi and fantasy with Robin of Sherwood, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of. Uh, do you have happy memories of, of that? Because she's, she's quite fierce. Yeah, she's a satanic nun. <laughs> I mean, not many people can claim parts like that. And that was fantastic fun. Not only being this uh, dual figure, but also acting with the gorgeous Ray Winston and Michael Prade and all the other merry men, and getting to ride a horse in a nun's uniform and um, turning them all blind with the magic of the sword. I mean, it was fantasy. Mm. Um, and there's not, it's not very often that one gets a chance to do that sort of thing. We had fant- wonderful fantasy sequences in Rock Follies. I mean, extraordinary use of television, which has never really been done again. Um, so no, you know, in an ideal world, you will have a solid, well-written, fantastic play followed by um, an episode in a good television series followed by a little film followed by a radio play followed in an ideal world so that you have variety all the time and for me the most important thing is challenge um, you know, trying new stuff out one of the reasons why I love doing audiobooks apart from the fact that you have lots of accents that you can try out but nobody can see you so you can do the most ludicrous things with your face and your body putting on all these characters without worrying what you look like. Oh, well, talking of a challenge, I, ha- I haven't seen the film, but I was reading about it. The 2005 film, it's called Jippo, uh, where you have no script. No script. You have a story, and you uh, provide so the dialogue. It was completely ad-libbed. Uh, there were no sets as, as such. There was no set decoration. There was no lighting. None of those sort of helpful things in a movie. Um, I've forgotten the Danish name for it. It's a very, very famous way of filming. And I've oh, Dogme. Dogme, that's it, yes. So it was a, a very sort of organic process. And again, the first time playing somebody more or less of my own age, completely unglamorous, you know, a Romany gypsy. Um, and we were filming mostly in Margate and Ramsgate. And I was actually sort of not physically attacked, but shouted at on the streets as if I was a genuine illegal immigrant. So it was a, a scary and, and uh, useful, exciting project and a fantastic finished film. And, and that, I guess, is what you mean by, you know, seeking out, you like stuff that challenges you. So, what, what, apart from the ones we've mentioned then, what are, what are the ones that have been the most challenging and therefore, I guess, the most rewarding, if that's what you seek? Um, certainly 84 Charing Cross Road in the theatre, 
a few years ago, um, which I think probably theatrically I count amongst the biggest personal successes. An absolutely wonderful journey with Bill Gaunt, who played my American counterpart. Stunning set, beautifully directed, incredibly moving play. Long, long tour. We hoped it would come into town. Sadly, it didn't. Inspector Calls, um, the Stephen Daldry version with the collapsing house. Yes, indeed. Was my I th were you in it when uh, my old mucker Bernard Kay was in it? Yes, he played my husband. Yeah. I thought you'd done it together, yeah. yes. Bernard was an early contributor to this, uh, bless him. And that was uh, the physical challenge of performing in that, on that extraordinary set with the really dangerous cobbled floors, wet for quite a lot of the time and wearing these, you know, enormous Victorian costumes and wigs and corsets, etc, etc. Um, and that's a, a sort of modern theatre classic in terms yes. of productions. Yes. I mean, that went on and on, didn't it? And it's coming back again. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. Um, most recently, Pygmalion, um, with Alison McGowan playing my son, which was a delight. Again, a beautiful production. I love costume drama, I love the whole, you know, when you start rehearsal with just the words and then when you put on the shoes and the corset and the hair and the, everything sort of changes, you know. I can't remember which actress it was who said that her character always starts from the shoes. With mine, costume is obviously important, particularly if it's period costume, but it's scent, perfume. I always ah. choose a perfume to go with a character. That's interesting because that's something the audience doesn't no. get at all. That's purely for you, <laughs> for you to put you yeah, in. Yeah, it's sort of yeah. one of those routine things when you're in the dressing room before the curtain goes up. You know, putting on the face, putting on the clothes, um, sitting in the moment, and the scent is the last thing before I go on stage, and it's like a, I don't know, a sort of aura thing. And. Um, what about some of the uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the tellies? You've, you've been in both both the major soaps, EastEnders and yep. Coronation Street. EastEnders was a bubble, so away from Albert Square, filmed on location in Spain. I had the most wonderful time with Mike Reed. I mean, we were just like a naughty couple of <laughs> kids. Delightful, delightful man. Um, again, playing a sort of scarlet woman. Um, Whereas in Corrie, <laughs> I mean, it's the last thing in the world that I would have been asked to be in, because it, it's a class thing, you know. Mm. Nobody could imagine me putting on a Yorkshire accent. So the first one was only about three or four episodes with Nigel Havers as my sort of escort. Um, and I immediately struck a chord with lovely Sue, uh, Sue, uh, Sue Nichols, absolutely. And uh, I took her aside on the first date. My first line in the script was, the cleanliness in these toilets is second to none, which is a horrible line anyway. <laughs> Not something I can imagine anybody saying. And I'd said to my agent before, are they expecting me to put on a, a Yorkshire accent or a Mancunian accent or northern accent? Because I'm not very good with regional. I'm good with foreign, but not with regional. So he said, well, you know, if you, if you try it and if they like the character connection, then you might have a chance of a longer run. So 
on the first day, and it's very difficult in Corrie because there's no rehearsal period. It's really fast. And most of the people have been in it for years and years and years, so it's just instantaneous. But I managed to spend a little bit of time with Audrey, um, Sue, to, to sort of give a little bit of a background to our history because we were supposed to have known each other for a long time. And then I said to her, should I try to put on a Yorkshire accent? She said, well, try it out on me. So I said, oh, the clownness and these toilets is second to none. She said, try and do it slightly less. Uh, the clownness and these toilets. She said, no, 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 stick to your ordinary voice with, with the occasional sort of vowel slip. So it turned into nearly one and a half years. A great storyline. And my last line was, betrayed by the tranny and the granny, I remember. <laughs> and I'm surprised they haven't brought her back because it was such an unusual relationship, you know, two older ladies with a sort of love-hate. And we really sparked off each other and I had so many lovely letters from people saying, you know, what, what an unusual friendship mm. it was. Who knows? Well, new producers coming in, so you never know. Well, they change every three years. Yeah, they do, don't they? Well, uh, we haven't sort of mentioned um, films, because you, 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 the British film industry is an interesting one, isn't it? Films a little bit thin on the ground. Again, because of my languages, I speak fluent Polish, I speak good French, I speak good Italian passable German. So I thought I would be able to find a niche within the European film market. But unsurprisingly and quite rightly, they prefer to use um, people from their own countries, unless there happens to be a, a film part written for somebody who is, you know, from Polish extraction but speaks good English and maybe French, whatever. So far I haven't come across them. Um, the first movie I ever did was Soft Beds, Hard Battles with Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers, yeah. Um, and it was one of those multi-disguise films for him. So half the day on the set would be getting him into one of his characters, amongst others, uh, General de Gaulle, Hitler, and a Japanese emperor. And he'd always been one of my icons. I was incredibly young pretty green and it was the Bolting Brothers production in Shepparton and I remember we were all we were ladies of the night and on set and ready and primped in our skimpy outfits you know seven o'clock in the morning and Mr. Sellers hardly ever appeared on set before noon and I was totally surprised by his his lack of self-esteem he was very shy wonderful to watch everybody knows supremely talented but insecure and we got on really well together I'm not quite sure why and he used to come up to me at the end of a take and say whisper in my ear was that really funny which to me was a complete eye-opener you know a genius like that to be insecure and the gorgeous Kurt Jorgens was in it and Lila Kedrova and, oh, it was a wonderful experience. And I hoped that it might lead to other things. It didn't. Um, then, oh, f 
Oh, Queen Kong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I understand has become a Japanese cult. The most dreadful film you can imagine. A female version of King Kong. My character was called Loose Habit. And... Oh, God, what was his Confessions of a Window Cleaner. Yeah. What was his name? Robin Asquith. Robin Asquith was the love interest. And it was all filmed on the on the back lot of, again, Shepperton, I think. I mean, it was, it was horrendous, really horrendous. An enormous amount of fun. Luckily, Dino De Laurentiis embargoed it because there was the new big King Kong coming out, so I don't think it ever saw the light of day in this country, thank God. Um, what else, what else? Oh, the, several funny films about one was called it could happen to you which was all about sexually transmitted diseases i seem to remember um i jogged my memory <laughs> oh jack says that was pretty good that was a sort of cartoon oh yes but you did royal flash for uh, richard lester oh yes but that was a cough and a spit However, there is a funny story attached to that. Oliver Reed was playing Bismarck, and uh, Alan Bates was in it, and Malcolm McDowell, and I was playing Britt Eglin's Handmaiden, and it was all filmed somewhere in Germany, I remember. We'd all arrived the evening before, very nice, elegant hotel, and we're all sitting at the meal, Alan Bates and his partner, and Mal Malcolm McDowell and his partner. I'm on my own. And in walks Ollie Reed, but absolutely plastered, with two fairly plastered, enormous henchmen. And he does all this sort of bravado greeting of Malcolm McDowell and Alan Bates, and then fixes on me and says, and who are you with this evening? So I said, I'm, I'm on my own. Mr. Reedy said, nope, be outside my door at midnight. It's absolutely terror-struck. I finished whatever I was eating, rushed off to my room, barricaded the door, turned all the lights off, and at midnight there's a knock on the door so Mr. Reed doesn't like to be kept waiting. <laughs> but it was all right. The following day he didn't remember anything about it. But it was, it was one of those things where most of the part ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, Not an uncommon experience. No, no, no. So movies, I never. There was a time with this hair commercial in America, which mm. became an enormous cult, completely by mistake. And uh, I went over there, and I met all sorts of producers and directors and, and stars, and huge promises were made. But in America, even more than here, out of sight, out of mind, and I had a very young family, a year-old daughter. I couldn't afford to move Kit and Caboodle over there on the off chance, so I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, um, there's only uh, we're going to have some lunch now, and this this is I told you this would be painless. I hope it has been. Totally. So there's only going to be three. I have to ask you: Are you and George Galloway still in touch? No, uh, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> Um, What's he like up close and personal? Because he's this extraordinary sort of strange political force in this country and obviously a compelling and interesting speaker. Um, and highly intelligent, but cool. But, you know, it's difficult, difficult to gauge from something like Big Brother. Everybody says to me, why on earth did you do it? 
And the reason is, and the public don't know about this, apart from the fact that you get very well paid for doing it, but you are promised a percentage of the punter's interaction through text and phone and email to go to your favorite charity. And I make nearly 70,000 for my charities. And the joy of being able to write out checks hither and yon, which, you know, will never again happen in my lifetime, completely made up for the hardships of the actual program. But we'll, we'll talk about that after lunch. Yes, of course. Galloway, when he first came in, I thought, oh, hurrah, you know, finally somebody I can have intelligent conversations with, because I really knew very little about the program. Um, and Michael Barrymore, who I knew not terribly well, and Pete Burns, who was a legend unto himself, and scary man. So that triangle formed the sort of pinnacle of the group that we were in. Um, and there's, there's so much manipulation which the public really don't know about. You don't know what time of the day or night it is because, you know, light and dark is controlled by Big Brother, temperatures controlled by Big Brother, the one and only toilet being open or shut is controlled by Big Brother, uh, food and, and drink and even tea and coffee. So it's a sort of cross between boarding school and prison in some ways. And unbearable boredom, you know, until you were offered a task in which you know, your efforts and results reflected on the whole group, so it was a big responsibility, which some people didn't uphold. But basically, the, the reason was to create... Um, to create anguish, certainly, to create fear, certainly, to encourage uh, romance of sorts, um, and to put people at loggerheads with each other. I mean, it, it's it's an incredibly clever format. But I think it's, in my opinion, running out of steam. And having done it, would you, if, if the equivalent of you was to come and say to you, I've been offered it, should I do it, would you say it's... Um, I have been asked by several people who've been asked to do it. And my main advice is, un unless you are absolutely sure of yourself and you are strong emotionally, then don't go anywhere near it. What I learned, and I never broke down, was that unless I had something to say which was pertinent and which I was certain about, then it was better to keep out of the way. Um, I'm a pacifist by nature. I don't like... I don't like certainly cruelty and bullying. And there's quite a lot of that in that programme. So uh, that, that's what I would say. You know they offer you a psychiatrist before you go... Well, it's compulsive. And then they offer you the services of one afterwards for free paid for by, by the company so they know that it can have you know an emotionally damaging effect and i managed 16 days and it was tough
There were, there were fantastic moments in it, but it was tough. Well, I can't guarantee we'll get the same level of input to your charities from this humble effort, but I hope it's been slightly less painful. So what are your charities, Ruler, that you'd like the listeners to donate to? Well, I have so many, mostly wildlife charities. Um, predominantly the Born Free Foundation and Animals Asia. Animals Asia is an extraordinary charity set up by Jill Robinson for the poor bear bile farms where they milk the bears for the bile and then Chinese and Vietnamese sell it as, as an elixir. It's barbaric, horrendous, and she has set up two rehabilitation centres. She's doing an amazing job in China and Vietnam. The Born Free, I think, is known to everybody, originated by the iconic Virginia McKenna, who have... I've been with them for well over 30 years. It started with Zoo Check and Ellie Friends, and now it's global. And, in fact, yesterday, the day before yesterday, I presented an evening at the Mal Galleries uh, with Europe's best-known pencil wildlife artist, Gary Hodges, who's a close friend of mine. And we raised... 133,000 on the auction alone to be divided between the Born Free and the Environmental Investigation Agency. No, no pressure who's round listeners but <laughs> and, and the final question is we can be nominally to talk about Doctor Who so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans who are listening to this keep going strong I love occasionally when I'm asked to the signings and the conventions to see how loyal the fans are I mean, some of them come dressed in, in the part as the Doctor I don't watch it on a regular basis anymore. I don't watch any television on a regular basis anymore. But I just think for something to go for so long with doctor after doctor, completely different, is fantastic, extraordinary. And I'd love to be in another episode. Oh, well, let's hold out for that. Uh, but in the meantime, Lulenska, thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thank you for that. I hope that was okay. I'm absolutely stoked uh, that Rula Lenska has done my podcast. Uh, she has a couple of charities that she mentioned there. I think you choose or divide or do whatever you like. We're very easy going here. Uh, Born Free Foundation is www.bornfree, all one word, .org.uk. www.bornfree.org.uk. Or there's Animals Asia which is www.animalsasia, all one word, all small case, .org, www.animalsasia.org. Um, as this is released, if you're northern-based, I am playing Bottom in a Midsummer Night's Dream at Heaton Park for Feel Good Theatre. Google all of that, come and see it. That'd be nice. Uh, I'd, I'd do at least two jokes. Uh, if not, uh, I look forward to... Uh, connecting with you on the next edition of Who's Round, which will be out around the same time next week. Till then, ta-ta. Doctor Who. Short Trips. The TARDIS eased itself into reality in the shadow of a tall brick tower near a broad, slow river. 
Ordinarily, the grinding roar of its engines might have turned heads, but not today. A nearby brass band drowned out the howl of its arrival, and the eyes of passers-by were drawn elsewhere. The doctor swung open the TARDIS's police box door and breathed in city air. Hmm, not bad, he smiled. Industrial, but not the worst vintage. Two more figures popped up behind him, jostling him out of the ship. So, where have we landed now? asked Jamie, a young, kilted Scotsman with wary eyes. Oh, don't you know? the doctor replied, fruitlessly attempting to smarten his shabby old jacket. Well, how would I? Jamie objected. A young woman in a sparkly jumpsuit gently squeezed by. What do you think, Zoe? Zoe took in her surroundings analytically, the way she'd been trained to since childhood. Petrol cars growled by on a raised bridge to the right, and a strange wrought-iron greenhouse affair stood raised a little way off to the left. Beyond it, near the river's edge, a mass of men in brown coats and trilby hats had gathered to watch some kind of display. Well, it's... it's the past, she said hesitantly, searching her eidetic memory for a match. She stepped forwards to take a better look around. There is something familiar about that skyline. Oh, it's London again, isn't it? said Jamie. The doctor clapped his hands gleefully. Yes, the south bank of the Thames. Oh, we, we can't have been here since so. Oh, let's see now. Uh, 1668? Oh, no! Zoe cried, pointing to her left. That can't be right! Jamie and the doctor hurried to her side. Further down the riverbank, surrounded by milling crowds, stood an enormous metallic dome. At its side loomed what looked like a huge robotic creature, a gleaming spire of metal, taller than any building, atop three spindly, insect-like legs. It's a spaceship, Doctor, like the Dominators. Big finish. We love stories.